0: I'm going to ask if you'll open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, where we've been studying for quite some time now. And we're going to be looking at the half of 19 and into 20 uh, today in this large section. I think this is the fourth sermon in this section. But I wonder if there's a day that right now, Any of you are looking forward to greatly? Uh, Maybe a special birthday, maybe the birth of a baby or a grandchild. Uh, Maybe you're looking forward already to Christmas with family. Maybe some of you are looking forward to graduation already in May. That's a big day coming up. I was so ready to graduate from college my senior year. When I arrived back from my last semester, I bought a pack of construction paper that was black, and I made a paper chain with one link for every single day I had left in school. And then I wrapped it around my bunk, and each day I would clip off one of those chain links to count down the days to graduation. I was really looking forward uh, to that day. Uh, Matt Camastro and Hannah Vandenberg had a big day yesterday when they became husband and wife. And, and, and many of you I know were aware of that. Many of you have had the experience of being married. Some of you more recently. But you know what it's like when you're coming back to your wedding day. And, and people will come up to you and they will usually ask them a question, You questions. Know, How many days is it? And you know, the bride will always know the answer to that. The, the, the groom will think for just a second and then he'll have the answer as well. He'd better have the answer anyway. And, and I've even had them give me the exact hour and minute to when their ceremony is planned. Because they're counting down the days. But for the believer in Christ, of course, there is no greater day than we can anticipate than the ultimate day of our salvation when we are finally with the Lord. And we return with him as he conquers his enemy and reigns over the earth for a thousand years. And it gets even better than that because we have the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth to look forward to where we will live with God and the lamb forever. But the story that we are reading about now in Revelation is really the symbol crash, the summit of salvation history on this earth because the promise that God made to Abraham to rescue the world through the kingdom that would rise from his descendants finds its fulfillment right here. I want to begin by reading the full text once again, starting in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19. This event takes place as the earth is already staggering from the throes of the most intense judgments. We read about them in chapter 16. And after Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet have gathered together all of the armies left on the earth to fight against the people of faith, at the battle of Armageddon, intent on surrounding them and destroying all who believe in Jesus Christ once and for all, only to discover that Jesus Christ himself, the champion and ruler of his people, both warrior and king, shows up with his heavenly army of angelic beings and resurrected saints to conquer his enemies and ours once and for all and confine them to final judgment. "'And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. "'Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, "'holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit "'and a great chain. "'And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent "'who is the devil and Satan.' And bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So you see this progression in this text. The king returns, he conquers his enemies and he establishes his kingdom. And as I said, this represents the climax of salvation history on this earth, not just chronologically, but also theologically. I said in this series within the series that the final return of Jesus Christ is the climax of the age of human history because in Jesus' coming, all that God promised through his chosen people, Israel, they're at the center of this. All that God has promised through his chosen people, Israel, is finally fulfilled. In verses 11 through 16 of chapter 19, we see the promise fulfilled of Israel. Having a conquering king who will reign on David's throne. And we rehearsed those Old Testament promises already in this series. In fact, we rehearse them every Christmas time. We celebrate the birth of the king, right? And in Chapter 19, verses 17 to 21, we see the promise fulfilled to Israel of a defeated enemy. And last Lord's Day, we looked at some of those Old Testament texts where God promises that in the last day, in the Old Testament, He promises that He will gather His enemies together and He will slaughter them all. And this morning, in the last third of our text, I want to begin looking at a very important passage of Scripture in the Word of God. We see the promise fulfilled to Israel of a righteous kingdom. This is the reality described in verses one through six of the millennial kingdom. Now, I think it would be good for us to park here for a little bit and explore this kingdom on earth with the Lord Jesus shepherding the world of non-resurrected believers, believers just like you and me, who are struggling to love Christ and follow him just like we are now. Shepherding them, ruling over them, alongside of them, those believers who have already had resurrected bodies. They're going to be reigning as well with Christ, but they're going to be reigning over normal people like us who are believers in Christ and not all of their children and their children's children and their children's children are going to even believe in Jesus Christ. Even with his reigning over the earth at the end of the thousand year period, there is a rebellion still. Once Satan is released that he can deceive again, there's a rebellion. So we'll get to that later. But this is the kingdom that is promised, a kingdom that covers the globe. And I want to wade into that for just a few minutes. This morning, I'm not going to look at every single Old Testament text that I'm about to refer to here, but we would be here many weeks if we could look at every text. We just read one in Micah, a wonderful text. He's talking about this kingdom in Micah 4 and 5. It's a kingdom where all of the promises that God made to Israel when they originally entered the promised land are now being fulfilled. That there would be no more disease no more miscarriages, no more hunger, no more blindness, no more deafness, no more lameness, and so forth. That's what God originally promised the people of Israel when they went into the kingdom, into the promised land. In fact, what did Jesus do when he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? He demonstrated the blessings of the promised kingdom if they would receive it. He healed disease. He healed blindness. He healed deafness. He healed lameness. He raised children from the dead. He miraculously fed multitudes. That's what the kingdom looks like. Jesus cast out demons and said, this is evidence that the kingdom of God is among you, Matthew 12, 28. Jesus gave his disciples power to heal the sick and he told them, tell the people when you heal them, this means the kingdom is coming near you, Luke 10, 9. Now, these miracles of Jesus touched only a certain number of people in a certain area in the land of Israel at that time. But in the kingdom, these blessings will be universally known under the reign of the miracle worker. Jesus himself. It will be a time when the worship of the one living and true God will resume in Jerusalem and people from the world over will journey to worship, here, worship there. They will do what Brother Doug read in Micah, grab hold of somebody going up to Jerusalem saying, I want to come with you and worship your God. And around the nation of Israel, there will be geographical changes allowing people to journey unhindered to that place. In fact, there will be a whole lot of geographical changes that are spoken of often in the Old Testament with reference to this kingdom. There will be new rivers of fresh water cleansing the earth after the tribulation period. I mean, think of how devastated the earth is going to be when Jesus arrives. I mean, half of the planet, at least, is is not even inhabitable. Nobody's alive there anymore. If if we take exactly what Revelation says seriously, which we have taken it seriously, uh, Mountains have been shaken, meteorites have crashed into the planet, oceans and rivers have turned to blood or something very like blood, and the vegetation has burned up on more than half the planet. But soon the earth will become a garden-like state again in this kingdom. And not only that, there will be peace on the earth in remarkable ways peace in the animal kingdom and peace between animals and humans, for instance. Isaiah 11 speaks of the wolf lying down with the lamb and the cow and the bear grazing together and a little child playing with the cobra. And nobody is threatened by this. And the animals aren't threatened and the people aren't threatened and nobody is harmed. People will live to a remarkably old age. Isaiah 65 says that if someone dies at the young age of 100, he will be mourned as if he died as a child. And all that I'm describing is foretold in numerous prophecies in the Old Testament. This is the kind of kingdom that Israel could have had in the Old Testament when God brought them out of Egypt if they had obeyed God's laws and worshiped him alone. He promises them as much in Deuteronomy 28, for instance, when he says, that your nation will rise far above all the other nations on the face of the earth. That's what Micah prophesied. We just read that the mountain of the Lord will be greater than all the mountains. Mountains in the Old Testament especially are a symbol of governmental authority. The mountain will be above all the other mountains. He tells them that in Deuteronomy 28. And he says all of these blessings will overtake you. You won't have to work for them. All you have to do is follow and obey me and I'll give you this kind of kingdom. What had happened to them in the wilderness? God told them their shoes had not even worn out. That's a miracle. He fed them with manna. You you realize this, the story of the manna didn't just happen uh, in uh, Exodus, for instance, where we hear about it coming for the first time. It followed them throughout the wilderness. God gave them meat. He gave them bread miraculously from heaven every single day. And they would have battles with their enemies, and they weren't warriors, and they would defeat them. They went into Israel finally for the conquest and defeated these these battle-hardened people without being a people of war because God was fighting for them. This is the kind of nation that God was bringing, a miraculous nation, And and the nations were scared of them because of it. And he told them in Deuteronomy 28, you won't lose any battles. You won't have any diseases. I won't bring any of the diseases that I brought to Egypt on you at all. You won't have any crop failure. None of your children will die, he said. Your land will be a living, lush, glorious testimony of my presence on the earth, and everyone will want to come worship me and me alone, God told them. But because of their sin and refusal to worship God, They did not experience the blessings that are spelled out for them in Deuteronomy 28. Rather, they experienced the curses listed in Deuteronomy 28. They knew times of loss. They knew times of famine and sadness and times when their enemies would come and take over and rule them and take their stuff and oppress them. And they'd have to cry out to God for deliverance. Why? There's one reason and one reason only. They couldn't love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength like Deuteronomy 6 says try and try. They couldn't. So instead of God's blessing, they received God's necessary and righteous judgment instead. And ultimately they received the greatest judgment, which he tells them about at the end of Deuteronomy 28. He said, if they keep worshiping idols and they will not stop doing this, a foreign power will come and carry them off to a faraway land. God basically tells them at the end of Deuteronomy 28, I brought you out of Egypt. I can send you back. Except this time, God tells them, you'll be trying to sell yourselves as slaves and nobody's even going to want to buy you. And as you know, this is exactly what happened. Assyria devastated the northern 10 tribes and carried away the captives in 722 BC. And Babylon did the same to the remaining tribal nation of Judah. Finally, the last carrying away was 586 BC. And the long story of Israel's history throughout the Old Testament can be simply summarized in a single way. The kingdom of Israel rose and fell in prosperity according to how closely they were loving and following God. And you know this, any of you who've read the Old Testament, that's the thing. God would do so much for them. He would do miraculous things for them. He would go and slaughter armies in front of them where they didn't have to lift a sword. He was still willing to do miracles for them. So, during the centuries leading up to and after God's judgment of their captivity to those other nations, God sent his prophets. A lot of the prophetic word is coming during this time of captivity. He sent his prophets to tell them, basically, you have a heart problem. And because nothing else can heal this problem, I'm going to have to heal it for you. He tells them, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a living heart, a heart that yearns for me to know me and obey me, Ezekiel 36. And I'm going to put my spirit in you, he says, and you're going to follow me. And God says to them, I'm going to give you this kingdom with my shepherd on the throne. The kingdom will be populated then with people who in their hearts truly love and obey God. And at the beginning, and I'll just explain this next week, but at the beginning of the the, uh, uh, millennial kingdom, everybody who enters it is somebody whose heart yearns for God. Nobody will have to say to his brother, know the Lord, you've got to know the Lord, because as the Old Testament tells us, everyone will know him from the least of them to the greatest of them. When Jesus arrived to offer his people this kingdom, he had some takers, right, in the gospels. They wanted it. They believed in it but the nation of Israel as a whole still rejected him. Pilate said to them in John 19, you want me to crucify your king? What do they say? We have no king but Caesar. That's chilling. They rejected their king. So Jesus died for their sins and our sins. And He died for us so that when we trust Him for salvation, we can receive the indwelling Holy Spirit as He promised, and we can begin to change from the inside out. In other words, there is a sense in which the blessings of the promised kingdom are already here. Because the heart change that is needed for God's people to live in this kingdom, loving Him and obeying Him, has already been made possible through the death and resurrection of Christ. I'm going to be really clear on that point. because I'm going to say some things maybe that you have not heard before. Or I should say, I'm going to say it maybe differently than you might have heard before. The, the, the reason that some of the blessings of the kingdom are actually ongoing right now is because the heart change that is made possible through faith and the death and resurrection of Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit is a reality to us. We're, we're, we're the kind of people that are equipped to live in the kingdom if we love God with all our heart, and that's only something the Holy Spirit can do. The Lord Jesus has prepared to return and establish his kingdom first by making it possible for his subjects to live in that kingdom and to follow him consistently. But that kingdom has not yet arrived. I know that it's common to talk about kingdom living and advancing the kingdom, but I think we have to be careful to understand exactly what we mean when we say that. In fact, I don't even use that phraseology, if you've heard me talk much, I, I don't usually talk about the kingdom that much, uh, unless we're talking about this, because I think it's confusing. Because the kingdom has not yet arrived in any sense, in any not like it describes it in the scripture except, hey, I got an amen on that, except for the fact that the Lord is changing hearts so that people are yearning for the kingdom. Now, the Lord is the king over all the earth. I started with that verse on purpose, that God is the king over all the earth. He's he's reigning over all, no matter what. But in the specific sense of this promised kingdom, this is what we have to think about and understand and unpack in the right, consistent way way. That's why Jesus told his disciples, the kingdom of God is within you, Luke 17, 21. He was trying to get them to understand that the kingdom is never going to come through any human effort. He himself would establish the kingdom only as a response to the universal faith and love of the king in their hearts. That's what that means. It has to be a heart change first. That is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, may your kingdom come. To pray, may your kingdom come is to pray that people the world over would recognize their need for forgiveness from a holy God and repent and be saved through the only person who can gain that forgiveness, the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. That doesn't mean the kingdom is here. You don't have a kingdom until you have a reigning king on the earth, but it does mean that everything is in place for the kingdom since the only barrier to the kingdom, which is sin in the hearts of the subjects of the kingdom, is able to be removed. So it's only because of the reality of the gospel that we can still pray this prayer today. May your kingdom come. May your will, Lord, be done on earth through that kingdom even as it is now done in heaven. And we can pray that prayer as we long for the final day of the Lord to arrive and for the Lord to vindicate His people and establish His kingdom, demonstrating to the world what the promised righteous reign of the divine King can look like. Now, there is much more to talk about with respect to the coming 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. But almost all that I've said this morning about the kingdom is not spelled out in our text. This is, this is all background. This is all what somebody knowing the Old Testament would think of when they read Revelation twenty one through 6. Revelation has a specific focus on the vindication of the Lord and His people and that The small part of the kingdom that we see here is focused on that. Satan defeated and bound, and those who had been martyred in particular, reigning over the world with Christ, that is the promised hope and revelation. That is the vindication. God ultimately demonstrating to those who follow him faithfully that this is the end they can expect. That's the focus here. So in the coming couple of weeks, I want to unpack this text and look at the implications of what it actually says here in this text and relate it to what the rest of the Bible says about the kingdom. And there's a lot to say about the kingdom. I mean, so much to say about the kingdom. I don't know how closely you've studied that part of scripture, but I want to close by pointing out one idea that comes from this text. Okay, It's the reason Satan is bound, and it's in verses 1 through 3. So let's look at this portion again. The first thing that happens is, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in, his key, uh, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Now, now pause there to look at all that just happened to Satan. The arch enemy of believers who led the entire world into rebellion against the creator this guy's powerful. But look what happens. This powerful, dark spirit being of every conceivable evil. And a single angel, we're not even told his name. He's not even worth mentioning here. Maybe it's one of the angels we would know by name, but the text doesn't seem to mention it. A single angel grabs this great snake ties him up with this chain and throws him into the abyss, shuts the door of the abyss, puts a seal on the door so that Satan will stay locked up for a thousand years. This has to be absolutely humiliating for the devil. For all his formidable power, he is still on God's leash. He can do no more than God in his wise and holy plan will allow. But why is he locked up? Verse 3 tells us, so that, for the reason that, he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, and then he must be released for a little while. Remember how all of the armies who are against the Lord and his people are gathered together at Armageddon, at the place where the Lord comes and judges them? Remember what happens in chapter 16? Satan, with the help of the Antichrist and the false prophet, that, that unholy trinity we see in Revelation they send the spirits of deception into the world to draw them together. They've already been deceiving the world to take the mark of the beast. Now they send these, these, decept, these, these deceiving spirits of the kings of the earth to bring their armies together. And, and we see this in Revelation 16, 12 through 16. It's the sixth bowl judgment. That's what Satan is doing all the time. He's doing it right now. He's a deceiver. There's deception in the world. Have you ever wondered why can't I really know what's true sometime? You you look at what comes out of our government, for instance, and this is not a Democratic comment or Republican comment. It's in any government whatsoever. With all of our technology and all of our social media and all the ways we can get information right now, how come it seems like we're still being lied to or we don't really know what the truth is? You just ask different people and you get different versions of it. There's, there's not truth going around in the world, no matter where you look, unless you're seeing it from the Word of God. There's deception in the world, and we have to go in with wise-eyed open. Satan is a deceiver, and his only mission, his only purpose for existence is to oppose and frustrate the will of God and lead the world that God created and the people of the world into rebellion against him. That's all he's about leading people against the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is the pressure that you and I feel in this world. And it is everywhere. You don't have to wonder why it seems that people have lost their senses. For example, that what we would think of as normal, obvious, biblical principles of family and marriage and morality that we used to embrace in general as a nation is now looked down upon in general and the exact opposite is being exalted? We don't have to wonder why that is, because this is what the Bible calls spiritual blindness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 :4 says, in in their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, that's the devil, that's the, the old serpent, which is the devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God. But in the kingdom, the blindness will be lifted and truth will be clearly seen and the devil is going to be locked up so that he can't deceive anyone. And you and I as believers in Christ with the gift of the Holy Spirit, with the change that we need to be able to enter the kingdom, we are not blinded. But neither do we have to be deceived if we will pay attention to and embrace the truth of God's word firmly and do not listen to the wisdom of the world. Like I said, believers are not blinded by Satan, but I think that our vision can become cloudy when we listen to and are attracted to the deception of Satan in the world. As I got older, the same thing happened to me that a lot of that, that happened to a lot of you. Uh, I started not being able to see things clearly as I used to. So, I had to put on glasses. I was going to pull them out of my pocket to illustrate, but I don't even know where they are. So, uh, uh, I, I, my, my notes are really big, Okay, so I don't have to like look through glasses. I, I can't stand that when, I, when I'm up here. But I have to put these things on in order for what is fuzzy and blurry to become clear. That's what God's Word does for us. It allows us to see through the deception clearly in order to recognize truth. And more and more in our day, we're going to be criticized by those in the world who are deceived. Don't give in to that pressure. Don't give in to the attraction. They are blind people coming at you with their long white canes, with an air of superiority, scolding you for not being able to see. Pity them. Engage them. Stand up to them. Proclaim the gospel to them. But don't let them compromise your vision because you are children of light as those who are prepared to enter a glorious kingdom. There's a lot that this passage has to teach us, not only about what we anticipate and what we look forward to, but about what our world is right now. And I trust that God will use this text in our lives as we continue to look at it over the next couple of weeks, the greatness of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much.